0: Happy New Year. Um, I thought uh, I just wanted to preach one of my favorite stories this morning. So uh, sorry for the audible uh, at the last minute. I'm actually coming back, I think, in April after the next series is done. And I think I'll pick up Philippians 4 then. Um, but, but I just wanted us to sit in this beautiful picture of salvation by God's grace. I was walking with my neighbor um, I think it was yesterday, and uh, he's a preacher. We don't always talk about preacher things, but I was going to preach this Sunday, and, and he's preaching at his church on Sunday. And he just had mentioned um, this interesting little phrase in the Gospel of John, where John continually refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you read that, and you might be like, "Well, that's a little weird, a little maybe a little boastful, like nobody else was loved, like I'm the one who's loved." He goes, "But the more I thought about it, I think it's just this innocent, um, very unself-conscious, it's just the way he thinks about himself, because of the way God's love has so um, sunk into his heart. He just thinks of himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. And I thought this passage is is another uh, one of those kinds of passages where you get this guy who says, he even declares like, I'm a dead dog. What, (laughs) I'm a dead dog. What is it that you would notice me? And then he gets to eat at the king's table like a royal son. I want to unpack this story because it's a beautiful picture. In, in a lot of ways, as you begin the new year and you think about what Jesus has done, what difference it makes that he came into the world to live and to die in the place of sinners, this is the heart of it. He takes people who are as good as dead, dead dogs by all rights, with no hope and no future, and he invites them to eat at the king's table like royal sons and daughters, not because of anything that they've done, but because of an agreement that was made before they were even born. And that's the heart of this story. It's a beautiful picture that I hope will stick with you uh, throughout this year. When you think about, who am I? Who am I? I would submit this is the heart of who we are. And As we dig into this, I think the first thing to see is the love of the king. Now, David at times can be awful. We need to say that. It's only two chapters later that he's actually going to use his power to, to take advantage of Bathsheba. That story is in the Bible. So David is not a perfect guy. But in this story, in this story, he models well What the love of our God is like, in spite of the fact that He isn't always like this, which I think actually says something to us as well. There are times when we might even surprise ourselves that the love of God sets us free to love others in risky ways, as we're gonna see David does in this passage, in spite of the sin and the brokenness in our own hearts. But what do we see about the love of the king, first we see this beautiful picture of who gets saved. What, is it, what are the people who get saved by God, what are they actually like? Well, let's look at Mephibosheth, and I think we'll see some things that are important for us to understand. The first is Mephibosheth's name literally means a shameful thing. And he is three times identified as being from Saul's house you can't miss this the the narrator of the story wants to make sure you understand this is the guy from Saul's house why does that matter well because Saul when he was the king tried to murder David and now that Saul has died David is now the king but one of the things that everybody would have expected in the ancient world And and really, you know, I I think of the, the history of the kings of England. This kind of stuff happened a lot. When a new dynasty comes into power, one of the ways that you consolidate your power, one of the ways that you make sure that there will be no coup to oust you from power is to get rid of everybody from the former guy's family. Everybody would have expected David to kill off any heirs of King Saul. It's crazy to let this guy live because if there is ever a coup that's going to be put together to oust David, it's most likely going to involve the family of the former king. So you understand that? So he is the enemy and he understands that. That's why he's in hiding. At this place, Lodabar, which we'll talk about in a second, he is a legitimate threat to David's kingdom, a potential future rival. So when you look at this story, the first thing you need to see is the love of King David here is a little crazy, reckless even. But but notice this other thing about Mephibosheth, it's mentioned several times, is that he is lame in both feet. Now, the story of how that came to pass is important. He wasn't born that way. If you look back at 2 Samuel chapter 4, what happened is that Saul and Jonathan, David's best friend, the son of Saul, they were killed by the Philistines. And when word got back to the palace that Saul and Jonathan had been killed, chaos erupted. Because everybody knew, well, now David's going to come into power, and we better get the heck out of Dodge. And in the chaos, the nurse who was caring for this little boy, Mephibosheth, picked him up and was running and dropped him. And he was permanently disabled. Okay? So he's helpless and all of this happened through no fault of his own. He went from being the heir to the throne to being helpless, lame in both feet, and it really had nothing to do with him. He's been broken, as, as this wonderful old hymn by, by um, Joseph Hart, Come Ye Sinner," said. He's been broken and bruised by the fall, quite literally by a fall, right? and so what i want us to see is the bible has a category not just for people who are sinners who are enemies of god which we all are by nature as we try to pursue our own kingdom rather than his kingdom but also for those who have been sinned against who have been broken by no fault of their own the love of the king is for both sinners and the broken he's also a fugitive He's been in hiding the way that Eugene Peterson says it, I love. He says, the only living heir of the once great house of Saul. But nobody knew it. His life would have been in danger if that information was revealed. He grew up with his royal identity suppressed, grew up with all the privileges of royalty denied him, And all of this aggravated aggravated by his physical condition. And to which I would just say this. Again, this picture. The king loves those who are fallen kings and queens of Adam's race. Those who know they were created for greatness but suffer in a world of shattered dreams and broken promises. That's Mephibosheth and that's us. What about Lodabar? Lodabar literally means the place of no pasture, of no rest. The king loves those who are hiding in fear as well. And I think if you think about Mephibosheth, it's a bit speculative, but I don't think it's a stretch to think that he's probably rather bitter toward King David. He's a crippled man with royal blood in his veins And when he thinks about King David, he has to think, this guy is the reason that I'm disabled and the reason I'm not sitting on the throne. He's probably heard about David his whole life and grown up terrified and bitter, and now, and now, the king has called for him. To which I would say, can you identify with being deeply suspicious of God, of wondering how things turned out the way they have in my life. And what does God think about me? And maybe even a little afraid of what God would think of you. And then he comes and he calls. <laughs> I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things I would just say before we, we move on to this picture of God's grace is it's important that we understand what's really going on. In other words, we need to have an adequate diagnosis of the human condition to really be healed. We don't just put a Band-Aid on a broken arm, right? And, and, and while sometimes the story is really hard to read about, in, in fact... God speaks truthfully to us about who we are. And it's one of the things that we do every week. When we do the confession of sin, you might be like, oh, these Christians, they're just always like beating themselves up. Our way of thinking about this is no, it's actually really helpful to be honest about what's really going on and know that the grace of God sets us free to not have to pretend. Because, you know, when you're pretending, you're always worried that somebody's going to see. Like, you know, it's like somebody's going to look behind the curtain and see that Oz is really not, you know, the wizard is, is really not all that much, right? That's exhausting. That's exhausting. But what we see here is that <laughs> as, as bad as you might think Christians think they are, it's really actually worse. <laughs> there was a, a fascinating Um, example of this, a guy, Hobart Mower, who was the professor of psychology at at Harvard, he was a former president of the American Psychological Association, he wrote this, this article, which really freaked a lot of people out years ago, but here's what he said, he said, for several decades, we psychologists have looked at the idea of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus which is like this mythical creature that eats children. So, it's, it's a bad thing, what he's saying. We've looked at the idea of sin and moral accountability. Like, that's a horrible thing. We've got to quit telling people they're sinners, in other words. And we've declared our liberation from this old-fashioned idea of sin, he says, as epic-making. But at length, we discovered that to be free in this sense, to have the excuse of being sick rather than sinful, is to also court the danger of becoming lost for in becoming amoral ethically neutral and free we have cut off the very roots of our being lost our deepest sense of selfhood and identity and with neurotics we find ourselves asking who am I what is my deepest destiny and what does living mean now hear me this is not the deny that sickness is real that mental health issues are real. But what he's saying is, if you reject out of hand the idea that human beings are sinful in the sight of God, you actually lose a sense of what does it even mean to be human. He got a lot of letters attacking him. Tragically, several months after he wrote this, he killed himself. In other words, getting rid of the idea that God is a judge seemed like a great idea. I remember years ago um, reading an interview with Alanis Morissette, some of you might remember her, and um, she talked about how she had finally realized and, and, and saw this great freedom. She says, I finally realized that God, he, she, or it doesn't judge us, but merely notes us really notes what we're doing, what we're like. And she says, and that actually puts all of the onus on us. We are making our reality, to which I thought, that doesn't sound like freedom, that sounds like hell. That sounds like taking on a job that I wasn't made for and can't possibly, can't possibly do. You know, it's it's really tedious and boring to, to have to go to a job every day that you're so overqualified for. But it's so much worse to have to show up for work every day and know that you can't possibly do what's asked of you. And that's what it's like when we try to take upon ourselves this, this role of saying, I get to define who I am and what I'm like. The fact is, God speaking truthfully about what is real, that we are, <laughs> that we are sinners with royal blood in our veins, should resonate with us it should make sense of the tension and the craziness that we feel well let's go on not only do we see this diagnosis of who gets saved but we see the beauty of salvation notice the Lord the Lord is the one who initiates salvation just as David initiates here David has him brought A.W. Pink, a great old Bible commentator, says, thank the Lord for bringing grace. You see, he doesn't just send word to Mephibosheth and send him a pair of crutches and say, do your best to get here. No, he goes and he gets him and he brings him. Now, I'm sure Mephibosheth didn't think that was a blessing, right? And we get that as we see the way the story unfolds. To be standing there before King David and to hear him say, Mephibosheth, had to be a frightening thing but notice from david's perspective he has him brought why not to kill him but because of david's love for another he's never met mephibosheth he doesn't even know this guy exists but he hears about it why because he asks Is there anyone of the house of Saul that I can show kindness? And the word is hesed, which is the word we use for loving kindness or God's covenant love. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show the steadfast covenant love of God, the love that I had pledged to Jonathan? And they're like, well, yeah, there is a guy, but he's in hiding. And remember, he's the grandson of Saul, your enemy. And they keep repeating that. Doesn't matter. David is undeterred. Bring him. Bring him. We see God's love for helpless enemies, right? Look at this picture of the privileges the gospel brings. In verse seven, he says, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth says, your servant. And what does David say? Don't be afraid. Fear not. He gets peace when he expected condemnation. He gets called by name. David the king calls him by name. He gets a place at the table. That's the heart of the gospel. The king's enemies made to sit and eat at the king's table but not only that he gets all of the land back do you know what that means that means that he got all of the inheritance that his family had lost through their sin and 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 he doesn't need it do you understand this like this is a picture of the lavishness of grace he's going to eat at the king's table forever what else does he need Well, he gets all the land that his grandfather Saul owned, and he gets Ziba and all of his family and all of these servants to work the land, but he doesn't need any of it because he's going to eat at the king's table. It's just like, here's here's this blessing. You get to sit at my table. Oh, by the way, I'm just going to, you know, throw all this other blessing upon you as well. There's a great... um, line in a hymn by isaac watts where he talks about how in christ we get more blessings than our father adam lost he doesn't just get restored he gets restored and even more there's one other thing i want us to see and it's the way that grace changes us now for this we have to go A little later in the book of 2 Samuel, and I'm not going to have you turn there, I'll I'll, I'll summarize what happens. Later in 2 Samuel, David ends up having to flee the palace when his own son becomes a traitor. Absalom stages a coup against David. David has to flee. Ziba goes out to David in the desert with food, and David asks him, where's Mephibosheth?" And Ziba says, well, Mephibosheth, I'm afraid to say, O king, has stayed back in the palace. He's hoping that if you actually get killed, maybe in all the chaos, he'll emerge as king once again. And David believes Ziba. But then in chapter 19 of 2 Samuel, after Absalom dies... David returns to the palace, and there he meets Mephibosheth again. And and he asks him, Mephibosheth, where were you when I was out in the desert? And and I want to read this last little bit. Verse 24 of 2 Samuel 19, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, went down to meet the king. That means David. David. He had not taken care of his feet, or trimmed his mustache, or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. And when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king David asked him, "Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth?" You can hear a heartbreak in David in this. Mephibosheth said, "My lord, the king." Since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I'll have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he has slandered me, your servant, to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserved nothing but death from my lord the king, but you gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, what, Why say any more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields, that inheritance. Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him, let Ziba take everything. Now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. Do you understand what's happened here? <laughs> like, From the day the king left to the day he returned, Mephibosheth has been in mourning, and he's only been thinking about one thing which has absolutely transformed him. And you see it. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king, but you gave your servant a place among those who sit at your table. I was a dead dog but you made me like a royal son. He can't get over it. I love it. He doesn't care about the stuff. He cares about the glory of his king because all he can think about is what he deserved and what he got. To see the sovereign pursuing love of God changes you as it changes Mephibosheth and like I said we need to be changed because we can be so like David who can be so kind to the helpless and yet wretched in his exploitation of the weak. just two chapters later we continually need to be focused on the grace of God that changes us we also see this the promises that the king makes really matter When Jonathan and David pledged their love to one another, neither one of them knew which of them would become king, but the promise was big enough for whatever came. And that really, I think, seems crazy to us, to make promises when we don't know what the future holds. (laughs) But we can do it because we know who holds the future. And he's good and his hands are strong. That can set us free to risk and love in risky ways. I love this, these lines from Eugene Peterson in, in ending here, and then we'll come to the table. He says, I love this story of David and because I continue to catch glimpses of it and hear echoes of it in the stories in which I have a part. The gospel miracle is that human beings like us from time to time do evade the temptations of power and the brittleness of success and actually manage to vulnerably love another person who has all the potential of turning on us and rejecting us. Every time such love is ventured, another piece of the gospel is proclaimed and the kingdom of God is made credible. What a calling. To so sit in the reality of what God has done that we would begin to trust him enough to love one another, to love those even outside our walls in risky ways. Will they turn on us? Maybe. But God's love is big enough. What an adventure we've been called unto, to love like that because we have been loved like this. And that's what we see as we come to this table, isn't it? we see the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus dying for those who abandoned him when he asked them to stay awake, to watch and pray. They couldn't even stay awake, and yet he didn't change his mind. He stayed true to what he had committed, which was to love his own to the very end. And God knows that we need this tangible reminder week after week after week. If you forget this story that I've just talked about, well, every week you're going to hear and see this story, which is the same story that God takes those who are traitors and rebels and invites them to eat at his table like royal sons and daughters. That's what we get to do. And if we forget who we are every week, we're invited to remember and we're invited to come and to eat food that we didn't pay for, that we couldn't possibly pay for, but food that changes us, that transforms us as God works with and through the sacraments and his word to assure us that he is a good God who makes and keeps his promises. I don't know what you think about New Year's resolutions, but I do know that God is the one who makes and keeps his promises, and that is what we can count on as we begin this new year. Let me pray, and then we're going to come to the table. Lord, we do thank you for the beauty of your love that you take dead dogs, and invite them to eat at your table like royal sons and daughters forever. May that transform us. May that define us. May that story, may that story transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.